fact, we've been dealing with the whole subject of uh, the Ten Commandments. So we want to thank you for being on this journey with us and for traveling with us in this. And uh, I've got one of those moments where I've got to preach on one of those commandments that is a little bit challenging. And so I don't know... uh, Last week was quite challenging, of course, because I spoke on uh, murder. And uh, that's not always a, a, uh, a subject that we think about in church and we uh, address and so on. But you know, this weekend it gets even better because I will preach on you shall not commit adultery. So praise the Lord. There you go. That's the end of the sermon. Good night. God bless you. It's as simple as that, okay? Uh, Really, uh, don't commit adultery and it will go well with you, I think. Yeah, but you don't feel like you've got your money's worth, do you, really? I mean, I say uh, uh, that. Now, first of all, what can I say? Can I get into this subject that God utterly and completely loves you? Can I remind you that the commandments are here because of God's rich love for you and cares for you completely and that he is here. So when we talk about this subject, we understand that the reason that God is so so passionate and so good is because he wants to protect you. He wants to protect your life. He wants to protect your family. God utterly loves you. And this commandment is about guarding your family against utter and complete destruction because we know in reality, although soap operas may teach us something different, that actually when adults Adultery enters a family, it creates toxic havoc and destruction. So the good news is this, that God loves your family, that God loves your life, that God cares for you. Now, you can't avoid speaking about sex in this subject, so let me just say the word. I know you're in church. But there may be moments when you feel a little bit, oh, Pastor Phil, have you really used that word? Well, there may be moments, so please forgive me and uh, I will move on. But realize that God invented this. But first of all, let me state a little bit of the problem that we have. Our world is utterly flooded with sex. Have you noticed that? You can't go anywhere without sex coming at you from all kinds of directions. Well, what is you say, well, is that a problem? Uh, yes. And you wonder about this. You think, where is it coming from? Well, we talk about sex, sexual jokes in the office. Uh, that come out, images assault our brains all of the time. We have advice about sex. You open a magazine and it gives you questionnaires about how good is your sex life. And, and we get all feeling insecure. Advertisers attack us all day long with sex. Isn't that true? Sex sells cars. Except Fords. Sex... Sex, I mean, you can't make it anyway, it's sexy. Um, 
Sex sells ice cream these days, you know, it gives that, you know. Sex even sells toothpaste. Sex sells deodorant for sure, because the one thing that when they're selling deodorant, they want to let you know that if you spray this particular deodorant on, axe, girls will chase you down the street. And men will, girls. Holidays. And even I noticed the other day that they attempted to sell dog food with sex. Uh, Don't ask me. Um, One... On the one hand, we have the best sexual education we've ever had in the history of humankind, yet we seem to have a growing trend of teenage pregnancies. We are told that sex is recreational, it's purely for pleasure, it's purely for fun, don't get attached, don't worry. We live in that culture from the sexual revolution, and on the other hand, we're told by the media that our lives gain meaning and purpose through romantic engagement and through sex. Today, we have a worldwide porn industry that makes more money than the entire car industry. So think about that if you drive that Ford. It is possible that what we looked at as a doorway of freedom in society, and as we looked at this as a doorway of freedom in the 60s and the sexual revolution, yes, we are free now. Yes, we throw off those Edwardian ideas, those Victorian notions, those Christian ridiculous thoughts about sexuality and everything. We are now free has in fact become a door for slavery for so many people. And that's the problem. The problem in our sex-saturated culture, our sex-saturated society, is not that we think too much about sex, but that we think about it in a poorly negative way, and we do not understand the divine gift that sex is from God to humanity and God's love through us, through this gift. That may surprise you. And some things I may preach this evening may surprise you as well. And so because of this, in our sex-saturated society, we have this understanding that this is a divine gift, but somehow still confidence in marriage is evaporating in our society. Fewer couples are choosing to marry, half are cohabitating before they get married, and statistics show that if you live together before you get married, it leads to more divorces. It is a cycle of problem and disintegration within our culture, a circle of high expectation and a circle of disappointment and pain. As the learned Dr. Storkey, who graduated and lectured at Cambridge University, wrote these words, marriage seems to have failed to provide the intimacy it promises because it has not been strong enough to withstand the pressure of stress, boredom, and financial difficulties. The argument has been that marriage, far from meeting our deepest needs of people, has often been responsible for some of their deepest problems. Now, I know Elaine Storkey and her work, and I know that as a devoted Christian, she is looking at society and seeing the disappointment that exists within marriage. And there is a need today in today's society to 
clearly think about sex in a different way. People are confused and the noise of our culture and advertising and money and pressure is bombarding us. Let's get to the heart of the matter then. First of all, God made us the way that we are. And if I could say this, there is beauty in the body. We find that difficult to think about, particularly as Christians, that God has made us physical beings and there is beauty in the body. Let me tell you something, God is not against our bodies. In fact, Jesus himself wore one when he came here on earth. God's not against bodies. In fact, he designed us with the bodies. The lie is this, that God is only concerned with the spiritual things. The fact that God is somehow a million miles away from the whole very physical world and that God doesn't want to be involved in these physical bodily things of our culture. He's not bothered about this. Now let me tell you something, that the idea of God the creator not being bothered about our humanity and our bodies is not a Hebrew concept in the Old Testament. It is a Greek concept that comes from Greek pagan ancient philosophy which is wrong and has robbed the church of true freedom. You see, the Greeks hated the body. Plato, Homer, all these Greek guys. They just wanted to get rid of their body. They despised the body. They wanted to die. They wanted to go off to a little ethereal place in the glories of some heaven and twinkle as a little star. They wanted to find true fulfillment in the spirit world beyond. And if they could get rid of these horrible bodies, all of this terrible stuff, then it would be far better and There we could live in a kind of divine divinity on top of a cloud playing our harps with a great big halo. So priests can't get married. Monks can't get married. We see Greek ancient philosophy instead of Hebrew theology influencing the Christian church. And the Christian church became this idea that spiritual is good, body is bad. And therefore, we really want to have our halos and not our bodies. And it's hard to make love when you've got a halo. So don't bother. Because it gets in the way. Bing. <laughs> Halos are a problem. That's why you get church music, angelic music, don't you? Uh, in the early church, and I like angelic music, voices of the early church, when you listen to them, they have a, a holiness about them. They are sexless. They have this sound of angelic singing that goes and Because the church has tried at different ages to get rid of the natural reality that God has made us in his image. And we have a body and we live in this bodily world. So is God against our body? No way. You say, this is is okay, Phil. You You haven't really spoken about adultery yet, have you? No, I have not. But it's coming. If we believe that God is our creator, he has made our sex organs and given us our hormones. And far from being embarrassed by them, he decided, 
how we should connect. He decided that woman and man were designed to be mutual companions and helpers to relate to each other. God has created the way that we are created. Now what we've got to learn to do is live within God's very best plan. And it's a good plan. It is not... It is not in any way a sense that God is against us. The first miracle was at a wedding. There's a whole book in the Old Testament devoted to intimacy and love and romance. Did you know that? Of course you did. Song of Solomon's or Song of Songs. And theologians have tried to convert this into kind of some kind of spiritual uh, metaphor of Jesus and the church and all of this and all of that. But the truth is, a Jewish man wrote this about a love that he experienced that was so wonderful and a romance that we see it put down because of intimacy and the glory of God's intimacy and the intimacy between a couple. To say that God is pro-sex is not the same as saying that God, that he is in favor of all sexual behavior and activity. The Bible is absolutely clear that men and women alone were made as counterparts to each other in a physical, sexual, and psychological way. This is God's pattern for the whole of humanity. Although sex in marriage is good and God-given, I also want to point out and affirm together that singleness, that God has given that gift of singleness in the, and that grace is also a good. But of course, the one thing we realize in our society is that sex is powerful. It creates something. Sex could be seen like a fire. You see, I, I love it now. It's November. It's cold. It's, it's minus 11 tonight. And I can go home after and, and light a fire. And we've got a fireplace in our house. And, and many of you know where I live. I live in Upper Rutland, which is different from Middle Rutland <laughs> and different from Lower Rutland. I'm just saying. And, and there I'll get the wood and I'll have all this wood and I'll light a fire and we'll burn it and the family will sit round and we'll sing Come By R together. And because I have a perfect family, I hope you don't realise that. Never argue, never any problems. We just sit there, I play the guitar and I wear a jumper with reindeers on. And the fire is moving and glorious and we feel all warm and perfect and wonderful. You take that fire and you grab one of that and start to throw it around the living room. The house burns down. The kids start to die. The house crumbles. The whole of Kelowna fire service turns up. Why? Because fire is good there, but fire is good outside of the fireplace. It's bad. Not good. (laughs) Got it? See, God's built a fireplace, a safety, where our passions and our love can be, but you take that out and put it somewhere else, and you find that your whole life is burning down. So what is the meaning of marriage? Well, the meaning of marriage can be traced back to verse 24, of Genesis 2, that is 
Why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, they become what? One flesh. Three words in this passage. Look at this passage. Three words that understand the way we should build relationship and marriage. First of all, leaving. Ladies and gentlemen, if you don't leave the family where you've come from properly, you bring the baggage from your old life and family into your new family and you've got a problem. And the power of God blessing our marriages is about leaving the past behind and beginning a new beginning. United. Marriage is a merging of a couple in every area of life. There is to be no area where a married people are to hold back from surrendering to each other, becoming one flesh. This is total union. To the extent that two people concerned really in one sense become one in the covenant. And sex can be seen as a seal of marriage and the relationship, the biological and spiritual equivalent to signing of the wedding certificate. In God's heart, marriage provides what? The safe place for sex. Only within the security confines of the covenant relationship where we are protected by security, love and commitment can the power of sex and the fire of it be unleashed. Only within the thick, secure, private walls of a permanent marriage can we become psychologically and spiritually naked with another person. That is God's design. To be loved unconditionally without strings attached and to love in return is what I call true freedom. We need to focus in our marriages, not always on our feelings, not always on our our difficulties, but we want to focus on leaving and uniting and becoming one flesh. So let's be honest for a moment about sex. You may say, you've you've been quite honest now. Thank you. (laughs) Can I just encourage you some things here? First of all, Don't treat sex lightly and don't say, oh, I shall not commit adultery. Do not commit adultery. That will never happen to me. No, never say that. There have been presidents, princes, and preachers that labor for a year, build magnificent careers, work so well, are amazing, but can end up with their lives in complete wreckage because they've taken the idea of their failure too lightly. God gives us a wonderful example of this. I know what you're going to think of this. The moment I say wonderful example, you're going to, oh yes, I can plan where this sermon's going. He's going to preach about David and Bathsheba. Oh, no. I'm going to preach for a moment about Joseph and Potiphar's wife. See, that gives us the key. You see, we don't have to succumb to it. Joseph was faced with temptation. She came to seduce him. She came to take this young servant boy. And this young servant boy in Genesis 39 said no. And even before the commandment was written, he was gone. He put on his Nike trainers. He was gone. He was amazing. He ran out of that place and kept running because he would rather please his God than to please his flesh. Don't take it lightly and remember, you've always got feet to run. 
Will you see through the soft words of our culture? Oh, it's only a fling, a romp, harmless bit of fun, a brief encounter. We have to be careful of words. As with sex and other idols, sex promises what it cannot deliver. Sexual temptation is not irresistible. It's not like the flu or cold. Oh, somebody sneezes, whew, and, and, and all the germs go in the air, and you, oh, and you, it lands on your hand, and, and then you touch your eye, and it goes into your body, and then you're, you're ill in bed with a temperature, and you're, you're let's just if you're a man, by the way, and you're doing all of this, and you, oh, darling, help me. <coughs> oh, I'm so ill, and, and you know, man flu, it's, you catch it everywhere. Sexual sin is not something that is that we we cannot resist. We can resist it because in the power of Christ, He gives us that power and that strength. See, beware! There is more to adultery than physical sex. It is toxic. It eats away at every area of our lives. How do you mean? Well, remember the cost of adultery. And if you ever sat talking to somebody, as I've done many, many times, who are struggling with, with a relationship, are struggling with making choices, going through difficult times, I want to remind them, and you can remind them these things. First of all, adultery smashes trust. It's a terrible thing to lose trust in a marriage and to rebuild it. Rather than losing trust in your marriage, it is better that you kick, you scream, you yell, you say, we've got a problem, let's sort it out. We need to change the way we relate. We need to learn to communicate because you can build your marriage from that position a lot easier than tearing down trust in your life. And the most serious mistake we do is that we don't fight for our marriages. It affects our physical and psychological health. It touches others. Our families break down. Our children are hurt. The instability with friendships and groups. The sixth commandment here looks at this and wants to protect the family, providing clear boundaries on sexual relationships between the nuclear family living in a larger family house. God wants to protect you from a pain and a disorientation and an agony of confusion that can come through making the wrong decision because God loves you. And my friends, society has paid a very high price for turning our backs on this commandment. So what do we have to do? Well, I guess if I'm talking to myself, Phil, come on, clean up your act. In other words, don't let the enemy get a foothold in my life. Be willing to look at this and we live in a sexualized culture. We live in a culture where, you know, according to a a survey of American college students, um, 
the last, last year found that 70% of the women in the sample had never looked at pornography compared with just 14% of male peers at a college. Almost half of the men surveyed looked at porn at least once a week versus just 3% of women. In 2004, a study found that married individuals who cheated on their spouses were three times as more likely to have used internet pornography as a married person who hadn't committed adultery. So in other words, we have to guard ourselves. We have to be aware that the world has changed. Never before in history do we have such, are we assaulted with such vivid, clear, emotional connection through the internet. Never before do we face a a problem uh, where it not only is presented to us, but we're engaging in, in, in emotional interaction. The society is crumbling under the weight of this action. So let me read you some words of Jesus. Let's not pretend that this is easier than it really is. If you want to live a moral, pure life, here's what you have to do. You have to blind your right eye the moment you catch it, a lustful leer. You have to choose to live one-eyed or else be dumped on the moral trash pile. And you have to chop off your right hand the moment you notice it raising threateningly. Better a bloody stump than the entire being discarded for good in the dump. You don't want to be discarded. Those are the words of the message. And we know what those words, what is Jesus saying here in these words? Well, what Jesus is actually saying here is beneath the imagery, he is simply saying, when you have a problem and you face a difficulty and you know that your life is going downhill, take drastic action. Do something about it. Don't ignore it. Cry out. Take drastic action and do something. Do spiritual surgery. It needs to be done in the contents of repentance and forgiveness. It needs to be done in the healing way that Christ can help and deliver us. But when we face that battle and we face those problems, we need to realize that Christ alone is the one that can set us free. And we're committed to that as a church. I went into a friend of mine's house recently and I was in his living room back in England and I was leaning back and I was chatting to him and I looked behind his sofa and there were, there were six computer towers, hard drives. But what is he doing? Uh, my mind wandered from, uh, is he some kind of computer hard drive thief? I haven't seen anything like this. And I know that he's not into computers, I mean, he's a pastor. He knows nothing about computers. And I looked at him and I said, what are you doing with six computer towers? Where did you steal those from, you thief? He's a friend of mine. And he looked at me and said, I'm rescuing. What do you mean you're rescuing? He said, "Um, these are just some guys that I'm working with and their lives are in ruin 
because of pornography and because of the internet. And one day I decided to do something absolutely radical and cut them off from their computer. So I took all of their hard drives. (laughs) There they are. And I'm not giving it back until they're free and delivered and I'm going to save their marriages. I went, wow. Six. He said, yeah. He said, it's good, isn't it? I said, well, it's radical. Maybe Jesus would have said that. And yo, I will come round your house and I will steal your computer. (laughs) But the truth is this. That drastic surgery needs to take place in our souls and our hearts and our minds. And the truth is, your mind is not the one that controls you. You can control your mind. You can. Because scripture promises that you can have a renewed mind. You imagine here the woman caught in adultery in John 8, 11. Oh. First of all, you have the bystanders. And we need to be careful here now not to judge sexual sin like the bystanders in that crowd because Jesus was not pleased with bystanders who judge. But secondly... See how Jesus showed mercy to this woman who'd be found in adultery. And our stance is mercy. Our stance is forgiveness. Our stance is there's hope. There is freedom. And God wants to rescue us. Isn't that good news? But then what did he say to this woman? Number three, go away and sin no more. In other words, let's deal with this together. Let me come into your life. And I will... Offer you a level of freedom that is in Christ's blood and atonement that will bring freedom in your life. You shouldn't suffer alone. You shouldn't battle alone. You should know that we are here to love you, to help you, to support you. And God's business is of redeeming people's guilt out of adultery. Paul's words apply here as... Much as anything, and such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ by the Spirit of God. You can be forgiven, you can be washed, you can be freed. I wouldn't even bother preaching this message if I didn't believe that there is freedom in the power of Christ. You just have to be willing to get honest and talk to somebody, will you? Because we love you. And guard your minds in this journey. We need to clean, our, clean up our hands. We need to clean up our heart, our thoughts. We need to make a difference. So how are we going to finish this? Well, the best way to avoid adultery... It's to work on your marriage. It's to work on it. So I'm going to give you, what am I going to give you? One, two, three, four, five points as a starting point. Now you may not be married. You may have been married and you're now divorced. You may have been through the pain of what I'm describing. And I haven't wanted to be 
to be disrespectful for that. Because let me hear something off your pastor. That when a man or a woman have traveled through divorce as a result of adultery, I fully understand the pain, the isolation, the agony, the disappointment, the betrayal, and the healing that is needed. Fully. And let me tell you something, so does Jesus Christ. And you are loved. And I've walked with too many young men, too many couples, that their lives have been wracked by this commandment being broken, and I've seen the utter devastation of it at the core of who they are in their self-worth and their strength. And I want to tell you that if your wall of your life has been kicked down through this and you've been on the floor and you've been broken, let me tell you some good news. This is what I believe. God can rebuild your life better and stronger and more remarkable than you can ever imagine if you surrender it to Christ, even in the darkness of this pain. Really. Because God is into redemption. So marriage. You could say this is four points to finish off. First of all, respect. Your marriage and your relationship, we need to... to a, a fair proof our marriages... We have to build it on these things. And number one is respect. Founded on mutual respect. Uh, as scripture says, no one abuses his own body, does he? No, he feeds and pampers it. That is how Christ treats us, the church, since we are part of his body. And this is why a man leaves his father and mother and cherishes his wife no longer. Two, they become one flesh. This is a huge mystery, and I don't pretend to understand all this, but what is clear to me is the way that Christ treats the church and provides a good picture for the way that each husband and each wife should treat each other with honor and with respect and with love, loving himself in loving her, and how each wife is to honor her husband in this way. In other words, our relationships have to be born out of mutual respect, honor, applause. That we need to build each other up, not tear each other down. That respect and blessing and God's favor comes through respect. And number one is what we need to sow into our lives is that we need to respect the people that God has given us. An advertisement was put in a magazine in a city for a lecture on, 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 on this. Is how, really, how to get your wives to love you like a king. That seminar was advertised. Is that a good one? Who's going to sign up for that? I'm going to advertise it all over Kelowna. How to get your wife to love you like a king. Who, who wants to go to it? There's a few of you, you're honest, thank you. Only one honest husband. 
that's good. I'd go to that seminar and, and it was a crowded hall. Everybody got weather there and the great professor stood up and he said, this is very simple. How you get your wife to love you like a king, then you must learn to treat her like a queen. True? So grow a brain, uh, <laughs> says the Lord. Amen. <laughs> so number one is respect. If you are using words, if you're using attitude, if you're approaching it with disrespect, you've got to build respect because cynicism and criticism is a poison that will destroy the foundation of your marriage. Respect, 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 bless and honor. Second one is responsibility. Take responsibility for the problems that you face in your own life and your marriage. Responsibility means fix the problems, not fix the blame. We're so good at fixing the blame on people. No, like I said in the beginning, kicking, screaming, yelling, you sort it. And if it becomes impossible, but you keep yelling and screaming to the last moment, what God encourages us to do is to be honest about our weaknesses, our failings, and own up to our faults. Be honest. Honesty about our faults. Thirdly, relate. As the question, how much time do you spend together? You see, if you don't spend time together, if you don't relate together, if you don't enjoy each other's company, if you're not investing in that relationship, then you are going to have a problem. Because one poll suggests that the average couple in Canada only spend 10 minutes a day in conversation with each other. Can I tell you what that is? That is ridiculous. That is a remedy for disaster. The most interesting, most wonderful person in your life should be your partner. And we need to relate together. We need to listen to each other. We need to talk to each other. And we need to keep listening. And we need to be blessed. And it's about relating. Number four. Romance. Is there, there is more courting, if there's more courting in marriages, there would be less marriages in court. <laughs> ah, you say, yeah, but you know, Pastor Phil, I'm, I'm a man and I don't, I don't do romance. I don't do flowers, I don't, uh, you know, I'm from B.C., I grow big beards and I walk around scratching my... Anyway, and... You know what I'm saying? You've missed the point. Maybe I should run seminars on romance. Maybe I should run seminars on how to be a good listener. Maybe we should run seminars because, men, if you don't know how to be romantic, then I suggest that you learn pretty quickly. Learn quickly. And if you haven't read a marriage book in the last three or four months, then probably that's what you should do. 
You see, they teach us in, as pastors to read a book on leadership once a month. So keep reading leadership, 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 leadership. And it has struck me that, that I can do that, but probably I need to keep reading a marriage because that's the most important thing in my life. And finally, well, and the romance. Elaine Storkey, once again, I'll quote her because she's a brilliant academic in this area who's a Christian and spirit-filled A couple in marriage is called to worship God as much by their truthful, erotic sex as by their prayers for each other. Romance should not be lost. Finally, resolve. Decide to make it work. Both parties have to make a firm commitment to faithfulness, fidelity, and honesty at all times. And if it's not working, we live in an age, thankfully, with so much help, with so much support, that we need to be willing to lean in and look for that. I know this is focused in one direction, but the commandment is designed specifically to protect family life. So I can't get round it. But we can all take something from this. That we'll never achieve it by any other way, ladies and gentlemen, except by totally surrendering our lives to Christ. Let Christ be the center of your marriage. And let his purity and his closeness flow through you. And make so many good steps. And you'll know God's strength in it. Let's pray. Father, we do pray that, Lord, as we've dealt with this subject, and I pray, God, for those of us who need to step into surgery because we need you to free us. I pray you'll give us courage to renew our minds through forgiveness and confession and deliverance. But Lord, I pray also that for the marriages here, no matter how long they've been married or how short, that there will be a deep resolve But above all, Lord, I pray that this is only going to work for any of us unless we put you first as Lord and Savior. And I pray, God, that you will help us to put you first in our lives in the name of Jesus. Amen.